25 to 30 to 40 percent increase in, in growth rate, cattle gaining four pounds a day, that's a pound a day. And if you, you know, if you look, you, you can visually see that difference in a pen of cattle that have been on feed for even a 50 or 100 days. Uh, so it, it's remarkable. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it is my pleasure to introduce one of my colleagues and friends from uh, the Department of Animal Science at Iowa State, Dr. Dan Loy. He is a university professor of animal science at Iowa State University and director of the Iowa Beef Center. He has also served as an extension beef specialist for Iowa since 1982, giving leadership to ISU's program in the cattle feeding industry. His research interests have focused on applied feedlot nutrition and beef production and management systems. He also is an instructor for our Capstone Advanced Beef Systems Management course. He has a BS from Western Illinois and his PhD from Penn State. So welcome to the show, Dr. Loy. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is kind of fun. I uh, He asked me yesterday if we were going to be recording in adjoining offices because our offices are next to each other in Kildee Hall there on campus. And I said, no, Fridays are work from home for me. So I'm recording from my sunroom and he's recording from his office. Usually when you're on a webinar, I can hear you through the walls. So it probably would have been um, bouncing off the walls. Absolutely. Those walls are thin. You can hear everybody. I can hear people four or five offices down like they're in my office. <laughs> Okay, well, um, Dr. Loy has given a lot of leadership to the beef industry um, from uh, the hollowed halls of Kildee Hall and Iowa State University's campus. So I thought maybe that would be a good place to start. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey that led to uh, your position there today, Dan. It's kind of a short story. Um, I, when I uh, graduated from, uh, from Penn State with my Ph.D., I applied for a couple jobs and uh, I was offered this one. And that was the first and only job that I've ever had. I think we can all aspire to that, right? To have that one application, that one interview and get the job and, and call it good. So, excellent. Well, I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, if I had to do it again, I, I don't know if I'd get the job. So, I don't know. <laughs> well, tell us about a little bit about your background that led you with your, to your interest in beef feedlot, right? So, you're an Illinois boy originally. So maybe start there with some of the influence of your uh, growing up on a family farm. Yeah, well, the farm I grew up on was was uh, a farm that would be pretty typical of the 1960s in Western Illinois, even Iowa. Um, very diversified. Um, we had uh, 
cattle. Uh, you know, we had a beef cow herd, had hogs. Uh, they were the mortgage lifter. Um, had, a, you know, a diversified crop rotation, corn, oats, hay, hay, corn and beans uh, was the rotation. And um, it, and that was, was very typical. Um, I had no idea that I was going to go to college. So, you know, I was, I was going to go back and farm. That was kind of assumed. And, and, uh, I came to the realization that, um, with the farm that we had for me to come back and farm, we would have to expand. And probably the only way that I would, um, uh, be able to stay on the farm would be to go into confinement hogs. And I really didn't like the hogs They you know, that they, they paid the bills, but I, I liked cattle better. Uh, my grandfather was a cattle feeder. And so that was how, how my interest, uh, uh, came into to cattle feeding. So I actually enrolled for class or enrolled for college and signed up for classes on the same day, five days before classes started and went to Black Hawk East junior college first. And, uh, and, and that's what, that's what got me started down the path of, uh, of going to college. 10 years later, I was still in college and, uh, Hadn't gotten a job yet, and my dad asked me if I was ever going to get one. Did he? Do you think you were going to be a perpetual student? I think so. He, he wondered about that. I think we all get that look, or they think we're vets if we go to graduate school to animal science. I still get the grandparents who are like, "So you're like a vet or a vet in training?" It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I got that. So tell us a little bit about um, your research that you did for your graduate work at Penn State, because I think it's really some of the foundational work in this particular field, and that maybe will lead us to some of the work that you and I have been collaborating on more recently. Well, that, that was uh, an interesting journey, too, because uh, I had no intention of going to graduate school, and my livestock judging team coach and, and Erskine Cash, who was the judging team coach at Penn State, decided I was going to go and be a teaching assistant there. So, so I went there um, to help teach beef production class, and and um, my office was in um, in the the lab of Dr. Harold Harpster, who had just come out of he was brand new PhD, a brand new assistant professor had just come out of the lab of Danny Fox, and uh, had and they were working on the early versions of the Cornell model at that time to predict growth in in cattle. And uh, he had done the research that looked at the basically was the predecessor of the adjustments that go into um, the frame size adjustments in the NRC model uh, as it is today. And so uh, we decided that that my research would look at um, uh, the the area of, of growth implants and how they affect would or how they would uh, fit into that particular model. So I, I started with, in a master's program and actually applied for a grant with uh, Syntex at the time, was the company that owns Cinevex. There, uh, interestingly, I think there's, what, 34 or 37 implants available today, and there were two then. And then uh, while that I was there, then Compudos was cleared. But at that time, there were Ralgro and Cinevex. So, so I uh, had done the first study with Ralgro and... Uh, and applied for a grant with Cinevex and got that grant approved. So, so basically, I kind of rolled into a, a PhD program. And so my research was, uh, I think the title of my thesis was a characterization, characterization of growth uh, in feedlot cattle um, 
based on implants or something to that effect. Um, so what we did was uh, just prior to that, um, um, there had been study, research at Texas Tech with DES that had where they had uh, um, followed cattle through to maturity and found that with cattle that were implanted with DES actually uh, were had a larger mature size than cattle that were not implanted. So we we went about uh, characterizing skeletal growth. So so uh, we measured um, different um, parts of the animal's anatomy, body length, height, uh, uh, circumference of uh, heart girth circumference, uh, height at the hip and, and the uh, uh, shoulders. Um, interestingly, we uh, actually branded the cattle to ma- have reference points so that we could make accurate measurements, which probably wouldn't be approved by IACUC today. Uh, but so we, you know, we demonstrated that implants would increase skeletal growth. We looked at different measures of body composition and um, and characterized the, the lean and fat growth curves of cattle that with and without implants. And then the other part was a little more basic. Uh, we followed a group of cattle through and um, and uh, measured growth hormone. Growth hormone's episodic, so so we uh, collected blood samples every 15 minutes for nine hours and then looked at at the number of growth hormone peaks, uh, the area under the curve, and, and characterized the fact that um, that estrogen implants do increase um, uh, increase growth hormone secretion. We also collected the uh, the pituitaries and, and demonstrated that the pituitaries were larger and had more growth hormone in them, which supported some of the work that actually Alan Trankel had been doing with, with DES prior to that. So it was, it was kind of a, a very broad-based um, study of, of implants at the time. Yeah, but a lot of really good uh, pieces there, thinking about the skeletal growth and the growth hormone tie-ins. So you mentioned DES. So if our listeners aren't aware, that would be diethylstibesterol. Um, and so tell us a little bit. So it's kind of funny, right, that you ended up at Iowa State with this background in implants, um, because Iowa State and the Department of Animal Science have a long history in the implant field, right, going back to uh, DES. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Well, your, your predecessor's predecessor, Dr. Wise Burroughs. So would that make him your grandfather, your, your uh, my, research my, grandfather or something I guess, like that? or my office grandfather, because I think my research grandfather is Spears' advisor, right? True, true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he he was one of the was one of the pioneers and in, in the first to uh, roll out diethylstabestrol as a growth stimulant, the first steroidal um, estro- di- estrogen based growth stimulant. Uh, that was used to stimulate growth in in uh, feed cattle or in feedlot cattle. Um, actually, when he rolled that out, the cattle feeders day, he had over a thousand people attend that year, and it was held at. Uh, if you're familiar with our campus, so it's C.Y. Stevens Auditorium, and and packed the house. And so, um, that was uh, a, a very interesting uh, uh, discovery. And and that's not the only discovery that Dr. Burroughs uh, did. Uh, you know, was was known for, but but one of the more notable ones. Sure, metabolizable protein would be one of the other ones, right? <laughs> metabolizable protein in, in in vitro fermentation is is another one that he pioneered. Um, and it, and in, interestingly about this is that um, the uh, Eli Lilly was the first to uh, uh, m- merchandise DES and actually spun off a new. Um, 
company from Eli Lilly called Elanco that was developed just to market DES. So that's another interesting little tidbit that we like to make sure our grad students know before they leave this place. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we've got some foundational work that occurred at Iowa State um, with you know figuring out that these estrogenic compounds were stimulating growth. And then you've got some follow-up work a couple decades later talking about, you know, that going further down that path to say, yes, in fact, these estrogenic compounds are stimulating growth hormone and tying that back to pituitary. So it's interesting now to think about kind of where our work has continued to evolve. And you kind of hinted at this. So you talked about noting the the increase in skeletal growth in implanted animals, right? So they have this this um, difference in in frame score and stuff, right? Which is why in implanted cattle, we can finish them at a heavier weight because they don't get ahead of us on uh, yield discounts and things like that. They don't get too fat for their frame because they put frame on. So, if, so I study minerals and Dr. Loy study, uh, is interested in implants and kind of energetics and body composition. And I don't even really remember how this conversation started, but one day we were sitting around, I think we were both on Emma Niedemeyer's um, uh, graduate committee for her master's degree. And we were like, I wonder if the mineral requirements of implanted cattle are different. And so in the beef industry, that some of the consultant survey would suggest that a lot of uh, folks actually supplement trace minerals, for example, at two to three times what the beef NRC would actually recommend. So maybe they feed 90 parts per million of supplemental zinc instead of the 30 parts per million that the uh, beef NRC would recommend. And thus was born Emma's thesis work, right? So she was the OG of, because uh, we've done a lot of work on this in the last uh, like eight years since then, but Emma was the OG and did a study where we had cattle that received no implant or received a uh, TEIS, so kind of a moderate potency implant followed by a TE200, so a higher potency in a um, about 130 day study. And we fed them either no supplemental trace minerals, uh, fed NRC or fed these industry concentrations that were two to three times higher. And I was so surprised that in both our non-implanted and our implanted cattle, those animals that we fed the higher amounts of trace minerals to had heavier hot carcasses, better gains, and slightly better feed efficiency. And that really took us down this whole path of studies that we've done since 2016, trying to figure out how do we optimize the nutrition of the implanted animal. So, you know, you've been on a lot of our students' uh, graduate committees and stuff like that. So... And I feel like you've got a unique perspective of kind of understanding, you know, kind of where the implant research has gone. So I'm curious what your observations are and kind of how we've gone from using implants to being more strategic with them. And then I'd like us to get into some conversation, too, about, you know, how do you help producers understand the best way to use implants? A couple of things. When I, you know, when I did my research, the only re, uh, implants that were available were the estrogen implants. And, uh, and you know, I think the the growth hormone impact. We know that that like growth hormone will increase skeletal growth and and increase muscle growth and and uh, uh, you know have those has those effects. Um, but in the 1990s, then enter the androgen implants or TBA, and those combinations really uh, uh, allow since they work differently, the the response is additive. I think in in Emma's study. Uh, with the negative control, which is unusual. Most of the implant companies that fund research, they, it's brand X versus brand Y. And so we don't often have that negative control because it costs money to have that. But in her study, those cattle gain, I think, close to 40% more than the controls. 
um, which is a remarkable increase. And so not only does that affect the major nutrient requirements, uh, you know, protein, energy, and so forth, but it, it just stands to reason, especially since, you know, minerals like zinc are associated with lean growth, that those would be increased as, as well. And so there, you know, a lot of, a lot of those studies, you know, and well, and, you know, I think when you talk about, uh, this or the the idea coming about Emma's research, I think really what you did was bust into my office and say, "Dan, I've got an idea." Uh, and so there were a lot of moments <laughs> like that. You know, does this affect? Is this related to beta agonists? What about other trace minerals? And so uh, you know, it just opened kind of a Pandora's box to a lot of more questions and answers, and you know, a whole line of research. Yeah, I'm laughing pretty hard here because I feel called out. I definitely have ideation in my top 10 and everybody around me has learned to take it with a grain of salt when I bust into their office and say, I have an idea because I might have another idea in five minutes. But that one one was a good one. That's been that's been been really fun. So I kind of like to think about it, too, as um, the nutritional requirements. And I think as a part of that is the management practices that includes the implants or the beta agonists of the modern feedlot animal, right? How do we make this beast be as productive and efficient as we can and be able to use our resources the best? And, you know, of all the things that we have available at our disposal, would you agree that implants are one of the best returns on investment in terms of uh, use of resources and efficiency? Uh, You know, in terms of technologies that improve efficiency, uh, and and uh, uh, in terms of return on investment, I don't think there's another one that's even close. Um, you know, the, the when we start talking about you know twenty five to thirty to forty percent increase in, in growth rate, cattle gaining four pounds a day, that's a pound a day. And if you you know if you look, you, you can visually see that difference in a pen of cattle that have been on feed for even a fifty or a hundred days. Uh, so it it's remarkable. Um, and and as you mentioned, I've been talking about implants and strategies and implant programs with producers for 40 years now, and um, and it doesn't get any simpler. Uh, the you know we have producers that are chasing grid markets. There's concerns about implants um, having negative effects on on carcass quality, uh, and uh, and so producers are. Are, are concerned about that and and maybe won't want to be more conservative than than necessary and so trying to develop a, a an implant strategy where you can you can uh, capitalize on that growth response and still not affect your 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 carcass quality at the end is one of the things that we've been concentrating on uh recently i like to say that implants are are the probably the most studied tool that we have on the planet but there are some things about implants that that uh, most of the studies are designed to measure growth rate and feed conversion, and so so they may we may see negative impacts on carcass quality just because of the way that the studies are designed, and uh, and so that's one of the areas that we've been spending a lot of time on recently. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that because I definitely credit you being a member of our team for the fact that we were able to do quite a few studies where we implanted and did not implant cattle and we could kill them on the same number of days on feed. Um, and that was because we, on average, would have had them on terminal implant for about 90 days. So our most potent, highest TBA content implant, they were only on that for about 90 days. And I think that 
it was really at your suggestion, right, that we needed to manage those number of days on that most potent implant. And we needed to have those cattle to a certain degree of finish before we were able to go to that. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that and how producers, because I, I like your comment of like, if you're going for a grid versus if you're just trying to sell on the on in the beef, like that you might have different goals in mind. Well, one of the things we learned through the years and in this I think there's this kind of came out in, in from two different sources. One was from all of the research that was done at, at Iowa State in the development of the ultrasound technology. And and then also uh, with the uh, Robbie Pritchard's lab in South Dakota, Kelly Bruns di- uh, did a uh, serial slaughter that confirmed this as well. And that's that marbling is developed at a different rate than external fat. Marbling is fairly linear. It's a slower developing tissue, um, and it starts earlier, uh, whereas external fat is exponential, and we can put that on very quickly. So if we save that aggressive implant until later in the feeding period, a lot of the marbling has already been developed, and the external fat will come later. And so so we can have a less negative effect on carcass quality, if any. Uh, if we would be more aggressive earlier, or we do something that restricts the animal's ability to grow in marble earlier in life, the, the, because of the way marbling's developed, it just doesn't have time to catch up. And so, um, so that's the strategy that we've been, uh, you know, that, that we've been talking about that, that, you know, I encouraged you to in, <laughs> incorporate into a lot of the studies that you, you've done. Right. So one of the challenges like that you mentioned there too has been when implant studies compare days on feed versus harvesting at a similar body composition. And it feels like there's been a lot more of the trying to harvest at a similar body composition than on the same days on feed because of this challenge. So what do you think we need to keep in mind as we're designing uh, projects in the future? And what you just, that statement you just said, I think a few years ago wasn't true. You know, they were all the same number of days on feed. And and actually, some of the earlier work on that was Pete Anderson's um, thesis work at, at the University of Minnesota. He found that for... Uh, with the implants that were available at that time, which are fewer than are, are available now, that for cattle to be to the same body composition needed to be fed about 10 to 15 days longer. And so that kind of set up people being conscious of trying to market at the same external fat. And with implants, that may be uh, that may be more days on feed. I think today we're seeing them more at a constant days on feed because the, with the current implants, the responses are so much greater in growth rate that they tend to be more equalized in terms of body composition. Gotcha. So um, implants are maybe going to undergo some changes here in 2023 in terms of the way that we can use them. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about some of the new regulation guidance that's coming down starting in June of 23? Yeah, so so the FDA put out a guidance that basically indicates that with implants, uh, unless it says specifically on the label that within a production phase there will be no reimplanting, uh, and, unless it says that specifically in the label, and so the good news is we've got some long duration implants out there, and the average number of days on feed for cattle, feedlot cattle in the U.S. is about two hundred days. And so there are a couple implants out there that are 200-day implants that are combination implants that are very good. So they would fit in those programs. Where it gets to be a little more challenging uh, in the feedlot would be, you know, for lighter weight cattle, 
cattle that are in a growing finishing program where, um, you know, where they might be on feed for 250, 300 days. With those, they would either need to use the implants that are specifically labeled uh, for re-implant or or, um, delay implant. And and I think that's something we're going to see a lot of research on uh, or or more reviews on studies that have been conducted on delayed implanting in the feedlot. Because, you know, like we just talked about, implanting early um, is... Is less is, is less effective than implanting later. Yeah, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, a lot of the stuff that's been done with any kind of delay, it's really been more about how do we get the caloric intake on those calves up to the level that we want to have, right? So they're more in the lightweights, you know, kind of calves, or you know, maybe if it's yearlings coming in off of grass, that we wait until we've got them up on a decent grain intake. But um, I, yeah, it's going to be interesting times, right, to see how people handle some of the the new guidance but if if folks weren't aware of it that's good for them to hear about right and now you know just to be clear within a production phase so uh, you know a cow calf production you can implant there's three products that are labeled for for uh, calves on the cow and they'll increase the weaning weight 30 to 40 pounds Um, and then when they go to a stalker or a backgrounding program uh, they can be implanted again but then once they arrive at the final feedlot phase, they they unless it's labeled, they can only use the one implant during that phase. Yeah, and I think one of the big evolutions you talked about going from things like DES to just estrogenic compounds to the combination estrogenic and TBA compounds, and then now having the long-lasting um, ones where some of the pellets are coated so that they don't you know start to release that hormone until a later number of days. Uh, probably some of the people that are really going to have to figure out what to do with this are those that feed Holsteins or other things that are on feed for five years. <laughs> right, right, and that that's gonna that's gonna be the, the the challenge. And you know there there is there is one implant that has been labeled for reimplant that would fit that scenario, but it, it kind of lo- you know with the other implants that are out there, basically would be looking at you know kind of saving that. And, and I'd like to we know when I've talked about strategic implant programs with producers. Uh, I always say, and it's a little bit like a broken record, that the most important implant is the last one that you own when you own the cattle. And if you get that one timed right, you're going to get most of the response that you would get otherwise. You know, it may not be 100%, but you'll get a, a lot of the response. And so I think that's that's what we're going to need to be working on is getting that last implant that you have in your toolbox timed uh, at the appropriate time before before market. Yeah, so I guess maybe just to wrap up a little bit of the implant conversation, you know, some of the findings of the work that we've done together over the last six or seven years would really suggest that for things like zinc that likely is supporting protein synthesis, lean, lean muscle accretion that those implants are really driving, um, that, you know, feeding greater than what the NRC recommends is probably giving us some of our best performance. Um, we're investigating manganese right now. We've got a trial going on with that. Um, I think the one that I don't really love the higher recommendations is copper. Um, Elizabeth Messersmith did a couple of studies while she was here looking at some different uh, copper statuses and finishing cattle and looking at different implant strategies with those both in heifers and steers. 
And really in both of those studies, we saw that feeding that higher industry concentration of copper, which would be 20 parts per million versus the NRC at 10 parts per million, had some negative effects on the implant response. And I think that that's because there's some estrogen responses on some of the copper transporters. And so I think those implanted animals might actually just be a little bit more efficient with copper than we want them to be. And that ruminant liver just soaks up that copper. So that is one where I, I don't love the, you know, more is better kind of attitude that sometimes we get with some of the things like trace minerals. But I think for some of the other ones, especially thinking things like the zinc, we're, we're on the right track there to feed more than what the NRC recommends to capture the growth potential that these animals have. Um, maybe just to any other thoughts on implants from any other studies you've seen from other institutions or anything where, you know, you thought, well, that's kind of a interesting thing to think about from our implant management or, you know, some of these ones that have maybe looked at more. Uh, well, you've, maybe tell us a little bit more about some of the work you've done with the McNay herd. So you and Erica Lundy have done some beef checkoff supported work, really digging into this marbling question, right? Right. You know, that McNay herd is uh, a herd that's been selected for marbling. Actually, initially it was using ultrasound. It predated EPDs for marbling. So uh, so the early selection was with uh, marbling for or intermuscular fat ultrasound selection. Um, and so those cattle will, it's not at all unusual for them to grade from 50 to 80% prime for a group of cattle from that. And so we've gotten a couple, actually our, we're on our third study that we've had funded from the Iowa Beef Industry Council uh, looking at, you know, well, let me take a step back. Yes, that that group, that herd is very highly marbled and has a potential, genetic potential. But they're, uh, the Angus breed and a lot of other breeds have increased their marbling significantly. So there are other herds out there that have that kind of potential. So we're, you know, the, the question is that we're interested in is how much technology can we apply to those cattle and not screw them up? We, we, you know, we've noticed, we did a few meetings, uh, extension meetings around the state on uh, managing and feeding cattle for, for high quality. And we noticed that some of the producers that were chasing that, that were, you know, marketing cattle that were, you know, 80, 90% prime, were feeding them very slowly with a very low energy ration and for the most part not using implants for the fear that they would, um, you know, negatively affect the carcass quality. So, so we looked at, you know, how aggressive could we be with our implant program? And then we looked at uh, different energy levels. One, I think we went down as low as a 58, 57 or 58 mega cal and compared that to a 64, 65, which would be more typical of what we would be feeding here in the upper Midwest. And what we found was that, that um, we can... We can use a lot of technology and and get grow you know and get good growth response from those cattle without negatively affecting carcass quality. And again, it goes back to implant timing. Um, and actually, on the energy level, we actually got higher um, marbling on the cattle that we fed the higher energy, which uh, you know would would make sense. There's kind of a theory that if you feed them low and slow, I think it goes back to how wagyu cattle are fed for the Kobe beef in Japan. That you know they have a threshold daily gain and then feed them forever and ever. Um, but you know part of that is genetic as well. So so that's been some work that we're working on. We're we're going to start a study in a couple of weeks here where we'll we'll try to um, 
do the same thing with the heifers and see if we can replicate with that with the heifers from that herd. Nice. Yeah, that herd is such an interesting group. But somebody said one time, well, I'm pretty sure that they're prime the day we wean them. And I'm not I'm not sure it's that much of an exaggeration. <laughs> they're, so we've done a lot of ultrasound with those cattle. It's not at all unusual for, uh, for them to be choice when you wean them. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. So let's transition out of implants and talk a little bit about um, maybe current feed prices. I think we would agree that that's one of the biggest challenges facing the um, feeder cattle uh, individual right now would be, um, and the feedlot person would be the the, uh, feed prices. So what are your current recommendations as we move into the spring of 23 here um, to help producers stay on top of feed costs? We've been talking about this quite a bit, you know, with corn prices seven to eight dollars, they've moderated a little bit, but still, you know, the question is, we, you know, we've gone through three or four decades where the corn price has been between two and four dollars per bushel. In the last two or three years, it's been between five and seven. So the question is, are we breaking through a new threshold uh, where we'll be dealing with higher feed prices continually into the future? Uh, this year, you know, not only is corn high, but with drought nationally, there's a hay shortage. And so uh, forage prices are, are high as well. And so it's been kind of a perfect storm where feed costs are have never been higher than they are today. I think the Kansas focus on feedlots that tracks closeouts. Um, their last summary, it was close to a dollar fifty per pound. And it wasn't that long ago, Steph, that we were looking at you know, cost of gains that were 70, 80 cents here here in Iowa. So it's almost double what it's been. So what we've been talking about with producers is, in terms of managing feed costs are, uh, first of all, what we've just been talking about, technology. Any technology that um, improves feed conversion um, has more value now than it's ever had in history. So so the, the the return per dollar invested for things like implants, beta agonists, is, is has never been higher than it is right now, especially you know as cattle prices increased. The other thing that producers sometimes do when feed costs get high is, you know, ha- have them in the feedlot for shorter periods of time. So you know heavier cattle coming into the feedlot, that doesn't work that well this year because there isn't. There's a shortage of, of forage to, to grow the cattle in, in a stalker and backgrounding program. So we haven't seen much of that. And historically, when feed costs get high, we'll market them sooner. But that's complicated with the way cattle are marketed because, you know, if you sell them live, yes, your break even will be lowest at a heavier weight when feed's cheap versus expensive. But we have this issue related to carcass transfer. And so you feed them heavier if you're going to market them on a carcass weight basis. You know, as you feed them heavier, 80 to 85 percent of the weight is carcass weight. Plus, we have record premiums for CAB and prime beef. So those cattle are probably increasing in value at that time. So so marketing sooner may not be the answer. So I think it's it goes down to being efficient, good bunk management, technology, everything you can do to to improve feed conversion, but then also improving the efficiency of feed use before it gets to the feed bunk. You know, op- proper feed storage um, f- and feed delivery, uh, trying to minimize feed waste. You know, the, just like the feed efficiency, 
uh, when feed has, is highest in value, you can spend more money on things like a commodity shed. Uh, you know, if you're grinding hay into your bunker silo, you know, you could on a windy day, I don't know what percent of it go, blows away, but it's a, I've, it's a pretty high percentage. So, you know, blow it into a commodity building. Try to do everything you can to reduce feed, both feeding losses and storage, feed storage losses, which that goes back to proper silage management, feed out management, all of those types of things. So those are the types of things we've been talking about and try to, in terms of trying to deal with these high feed costs. So I think a lot of the topics that you just mentioned, bunk management, uh, feed processing, feed storage, um, things like that, those would all be topics that you guys probably cover in your feedlot short course every year? Yeah, it, it is, uh, especially the bunk management. We spend a lot of time on that. You know, we, we, we and I'm not sure where I heard this, I, but I stole it from someone. But the, you, the, the idea that there's four rations in, in the feedlot, there's the one that you formulate as a nutritionist. There's the one that actually goes into the feed wagon. And uh, historically, and, and there's these new technologies that integrate this, the, the uh, scale head with, with the uh, um, feed wagon have really improved that because there's, there was a bias when you're using an end loader to put modified or wet distiller's grains that you always overcompensate because that one chunk falls into the feed wagon. So, um, so that's improved that you can actually grade your 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 uh, whoever's loading the the feeds wagon or or mixer um to on that issue but then there's what actually gets delivered and that's one of the things we talk about in the the feedlot short course is evaluating mixing and so we use a penn state particle separator to calculate coefficient of variation on on the load as it's being unloaded to look at how well the particle size is how uniform the particle size is from the beginning to the end of the load and then the fourth one is what the cattle actually eat. And so that's where we get into selectivity and, and, you know, mixing order to try to make sure that your ration stays together and that type of thing. So the short course that you host, tell us a little bit more about some of the logistics on that. That's usually in August. Yeah, it's in August. This year, we're, we're going to change it up a little bit. Uh, historically, it's been here in, uh, in Ames and, uh, and w- both here on campus, and then we go out to Kowser's feedlot. Um, this year, we're going to move it to Southwest Iowa and and try that for the you know we've done it for six years consecutive. Last year was the first year we didn't fill up, um, so we had a couple open seats. So we're going to try to 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 move it around a little bit. So we're, we're going to shorten it up uh, by about a half a day, and then we're going to hold it down in Southwest Iowa at our Armstrong Research Farm and utilize a local feedlot down there as well. Nice. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I always run into random people at different meetings. They'll be like, oh, yeah, I've been to your short course, or I heard Robbie come and preach on the merits of bunk scoring and, and things like that. So I know you get lots of good good feedback from that meeting. Yeah, it's been, so, a, it's been a, good, uh, a good program. Yeah. So I guess one of the things I wanted to make sure I got a chance to visit with you here about today was that, you know, I introduced you as my, my colleague and friend, but you have uh, been a real mentor to me, right, in the feedlot nutrition space, especially me coming in as a fresh PhD who, you know, didn't have a lot of applied feedlot background um, and drug me to the meetings and things like that since you're an extrovert and I'm not. And we, I super we appreciated. Threw, we threw you right into a research project <laughs> that was pretty impactful at, yeah, at, yeah. when you first got here. I mean, and that was great, right? So that was some of the power fund work that you guys had gotten funded and you basically said, 
we have a sulfur toxicity problem with the distillers and other things coming from ethanol. You're a mineral nerd. Go find a solution. And I, I, we kind of did. So that was yep. great thinking about how we have more forage in the diet to keep the pH from getting too low. And that really prevented some of the sulfur toxicity risks. But I wanted to talk a little bit about your impact on others as a mentor and then maybe some of the ones who have been impactful mentors for you because you kind of named a few people along the way for your journey who like your person from, you know, Blackhawk who was like, you're going here, <laughs> you know. So what, who have been some of the most impactful mentors to you? Well, you know, at, at Blackhawk, um, you know, Dan Hogue was a judging team coach there for like 50 years. So he was one of my first mentors. Um, and then when I went to um, to Penn State, you know, I actually was co-advised by Erskine Cash, who was the judging team coach, but uh, he didn't really have a research appointment. Uh, but he had been to Michigan State and in, in, in feedlot nutrition as well. And um, and, and Harold Harpster um, in and the, the basic research that I did was actually in Paul Wongsness lab. Um, and Paul was well, he was my official uh PhD thesis advisor because Harold was an assistant professor and they couldn't because I was was a PhD student uh, they they had to co advise but but in his lab that's where we did all the you know the the hormone work and and blood work and that that type of thing but Harold still had a very close relationship with Danny Fox and so even uh, during grad school and after grad school I considered Danny Fox to be uh, a mentor uh, to me. Um, I know when, when uh, in the animal science meetings, when I had applied for this job, Bud Ewing was the department head at the time, and Bud came to my my uh, seminar, and Danny was in the room, and he threw me a couple softballs for questions. So, <laughs> so that was that was helpful. Um, and the, the other mentor, a couple other mentors from an extension standpoint that I would uh, point uh, point out one would be um Don Gill from Oklahoma State. Um he he was he and Gary Cool were had positions much like mine. They were a little more, you know, farther along and and I learned a lot from from both of, of those people in terms of how to be do extension feedlot work and uh and so so that was uh, uh very beneficial to me. Um and then, you know, my partner in crime for about 25 years, Daryl Strobing. Um, we did a lot of windshield time, uh, going to extension meetings through the years. Uh, and so he was definitely a, a, a mentor to me. And then the final one I'd mention is your predecessor, Alan Trenkel. Um, I don't know what year it was, but we, for many years, we were the extension group at Iowa State. Livestock extension were all in one office, but then department chair at the time thought we need to integrate more with the research faculty. So they put me next to Alan Trenkel's office. And so I spent a lot of time with Alan Trenkel and, uh, you know, he was kind of, he was a quiet kind of unassuming person, but he was brilliant. And, um, we would go to those NCC, whatever the predecessor to NCC 308 was, and he didn't really like to fly that much. So we'd drive. And so we'd get lots of windshield time, and and I learned a lot about, you know, he was a grad student under Wise Burroughs. And so I learned a lot about some of the history here. I learned a lot about basic ruminant nutrition. 
I also learned uh, a lot about Lewis and Clark because he was uh, obsessed with Lewis, the Lewis and Clark Trail. He he grew up in Western Nebraska on on the Lewis and Clark uh, Trail, and so so uh, yeah, he was definitely a mentor as well. So that's just a few. Yeah, and I mean, Alan did some of the work with feeding, you know, over 14% crude protein, right, to implanted yearlings to show that, you know, we needed to get more protein into those animals to support kind of the optimal growth to those implanted cattle. Yeah, it's very similar to what you'd done with uh, with uh, minerals, you know. And, and the interesting thing is it, it, that kind of predated what, like, our, if you plugged in the growth rate of those cattle, um to the current NRC, you, it probably would have predicted 14%. Uh, but he just, dem- excuse me, demonstrated that. Yeah, yeah. So cool. I love, we were having this conversation the other day about disruptive science and how, you know, maybe we don't have as much time now for disruptive science because it's kind of a publisher parish, like hamster wheel sort of thing, unfortunately, or like the funding model is very different. And I think that windshield time with a colleague where you can just have open conversations about things, right? Like that's, we talk about that with grad students too, right? You get to know somebody so well personally, but just the chance to throw ideas out and get feedback and talk about all the crazy stuff. And I think that's where the opportunity to improve things continues, right? Because the likelihood of us having a technology that's going to come along and improve cattle another 20% in average daily gain is probably pretty low, but we can have lots of things where we might improve things one or two or three or four percent, and we could just kind of pile those up. Yeah. Uh, what interesting story as an example. Um, he he told me this story about Wise Burroughs when he was uh, developing the metabolizable protein system, and you know, a lot of people not, may not be aware, but but that he also developed uh, metabolizable amino acid requirements as part of that. And so he was using, you know, one of those digital calculators to manually calculate uh, the amino acid requirements for for cattle. And, there, you know, was several steps that he was going through. And, and at that time, programmable calculators, the TI-59s were, you know, it was kind of before personal computers. But the TI, the, the programmable calculators were, were something that were out there. And Alan, you know, was a grad student at the time and, and said, Dr. Burroughs, I I can develop a program for you that would, you know, cut the amount of time that you spend to do this, you know, by 80%. And Wise looked at him and said, you know, if you did that, I wouldn't have time to think. Ah, so so true. So I I thought that was interesting. So That was his form of meditation was punching the calculator. (laughs) I like it. I like it. But, I mean, there's a ton of value in that, right? Like sometimes we just need to slow down. And have the time to think, and that's hard. It's time for our famous three. All right. Well, we've reached the point of our podcast where we're ready for our final three questions. So are you ready for these? All right. Okay. So question number one, what is your favorite beef resource? Yeah, that's a good, oh, of course it's the Iowa Beef Center website, right? Obviously. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But we, you know, we do, we do work really hard to try to keep that up to date. But I, I you know, I, I look a lot of places. I, you know, I do try to set some time aside to, to, um, you know, I, I do read the, the applied journals. Um, I do look at animal science, um, but I really keep up 
to date with the popular press too, because I want to know what everyone else is talking about now. And so, uh, uh, so that may lead me down other to other resources, but but I don't I don't think I can just name just one that I follow routinely. All right, that's fair. Okay, question number two: What is your favorite non-beef resource that you're, or what's a what's a book not related to beef that you're reading right now? I should know these questions, but apparently I don't. <laughs> um, I'll tell you one that I read last summer. And it was actually it was part of a, a book club that on a on an extension uh, committee that I was on, and it's called Culture Renovation. And it uh, and it and it goes it talks about um, you know developing uh, Im- improving culture in in, in companies or uh, within your you know your your work life and that type of thing. It was very good. Excellent. I always love a good book club. That's great. Okay, final question. What is a trait of someone that you admire that has allowed them to be successful? This is this is just what immediately comes to mind. But my dad's 90th birthday is coming up in a couple of weeks, and we're going to have a party for him. We're going to go visit him. But my dad is... And and I don't know if this, this made him successful as a human being, maybe not so much as a farmer. Um but he's the kindest, most humble person I've, I've ever known. And, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. And he's a heck of an artist, right? He's a very good artist, yeah. He actually majored in art in, in college, and he, he's in the Veterans Home in LaSalle, Illinois, and he continues to do oil paintings today. So, Dan was showing off his granddaughter's artwork in the lunchroom yesterday in Kildee, and we decided that that talent must have skipped a few generations. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, I, I didn't receive any of that talent. I'll, I can assure you that. Uh, well, Dan, this has been really great. We appreciate your time coming on the show today. And uh, I get the benefit of your wisdom every day in the office. And it's nice to get to share that with our listeners here today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. <laughs> 